one in five Canadians right now is living with mental illness, and it's it's substantially higher for lawyers. We're four times more likely to live with depression and anxiety. But when you have those numbers, you are not alone. Hello and welcome to season four of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And we have a great season coming up for you guys. We're very excited about the interviews that I've been doing over the past several months getting ready for this podcast season. And today we are launching it with a conversation I had with Beth Beatty. Yes. Beth is possibly a familiar face and name to some people who have been following the Bell Let's Talk campaign because she is, as she put it, the lawyer in the uh, Bell Let's Talk campaign. Beth is a lawyer with the Ministry of Health in Toronto, and she is a really incredible inspiration to people who are struggling with mental health issues because she made the momentous decision to kind of come out of the mental health closet um, after 14 years, was it, of, right. of being afraid to say anything about her her mental health and the things that she had been through to her colleagues. And you've just got such an incredible conversation with her about that. This is really part of normalizing that. And it's exactly. such an important conversation to have. So we thought it was a great way to start. And I'm also happy to say that for me personally, this was a reconnection with somebody who I met a long time ago. I met Beth Beatty when she was a student on the Masters of Law in Alternative Dispute Resolution at Osgoode Hall Law School, and I was her professor. (laughs) I should add, this was 2001 to 2003. In other words, a very long time ago. And Beth and I stayed in touch for a while, but it had been a really long time since I heard from her. And then I got a message from her this past new year, and I had no idea what she was about to tell me in that email. She told me that Not long at all after completing her master's, she had been hospitalized with a psychotic breakdown and subsequently diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And she's going to talk about this in the interview. She went back to the office pretty much immediately, and she told no one, Mm -hmm. as Dana said, no one for the next 14 years because she was afraid of what people would think about her, about their reaction to her as a professional, as a lawyer. Two years ago... Beth came out of the vault, and in our conversation, she tells the story of how and why and the release and liberation she has felt as a result. So let's listen. Hello, Beth. Hi, Julie. So nice to make this connection again. It's been a really long time. I think, is it 17 years? Is it 18 years? It's a long time. But, it's been a um, very long time. Yeah, but it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have heard from you. And it's even more wonderful to hear about the amazing work that you're doing. And I'm so much looking forward to having this conversation with you today. And I know this is a topic that a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are very interested in how what we do about mental health issues in the legal profession. So I'm going to just jump right in here. 
you know, invite you to begin with to say a little bit about your story and, you know, to set the scene. I know that six months after you graduated from the Osgood Masters program, where uh, I met you, you were hospitalized with a psychotic episode. And I didn't know anything of this, of course, until you wrote to me just a couple of months ago. And neither did your colleagues for many years. And I know you're going to go on and explain. But first, can you say whatever you're comfortable telling our listeners about that first illness? Because I can only imagine that it basically blew up your life and how it affected you and your course of treatment now after being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Yeah, it dates back to when I was 27 years old, so eight years before my psychotic episode. I had my first episode of major depression. I was Mm. a first-year lawyer at one of the Bay Street firms, and I I just, those places are pressure cookers, and I slipped into a depression. Then over the course of eight years, I had several depressive episodes and then some hypomanic episodes, so Mm. just uh, minor manias where I would talk a lot, it was hard to interrupt me, I was irritable, Mm. I was hyperactive kind of euphoric and Mm. so I just had uh, those ups and downs but at its most extreme mania can lead to psychoses when I was 35 years old uh, it happened to me where I thought my father was God and my nephew was the second coming and I ended up uh, being taken uh, down to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health by my family and ended up being detained in that hospital for two weeks Right, right. And I mean, I just can't even imagine, Beth, how scary that must have been. Yeah, it um, it was devastating. It was devastating to be hospitalized because yeah. that was not part of my career plan. No, exactly. I mean, how much of the time that you were hospitalized were you thinking, how am I going to explain this back at the office? What was very interesting was um, I only missed four days of work because oh. over the Christmas holidays, oh. and um, so there was a statutory holiday yeah. in there, and the second week, I actually went back to work, go to the office, uh, do my thing, and then I would return home, uh, back to the hospital uh, where I would take my meds, and they wanted to make right. sure I was getting enough sleep. You were treated as an outpatient, well. right? I was, I was. So, in fact, I only missed those four days of work, despite being incredibly ill. So... I know because you've told me that it took you another 14 years, 14 years to once you'd managed to, you know, apparently only miss a couple of days work in that first instance right. to come out of what you have described as the mental illness vault with your work colleagues. Now, there's all sorts of things I want to ask you about this. And I think this is such an important thing for people to hear you talk about. But first of all, Talk about why you felt your illness had to be a secret for so long. And, and what was the impact on you of, of keeping that secret? I, I had to keep it secret, I felt, because the stereotyping, especially 16 years ago, was that people with bipolar disorder are inherently unstable and mm-hmm. unreliable. And I certainly didn't want to have that associated with me as a lawyer. Right. And I also really lacked confidence because when I was discharged, I read up about bipolar disorder and it's apparent that lots of people do get sick again. Uh, Some people can't tolerate the medication. It's a lot of uncertainty. It was so uncertain and I just 
couldn't cope with the idea of people finding out about it. But was this not something, I mean, I can understand all those reasons, but was this not something that then became a kind of an added source of, of stress for you? And even, you know, I mean, I hesitate to ask you this, but was there a sense of shame that you felt yeah. here? See, I, I don't like the term shame because to me, shame suggests that uh, one oh, has done something it's wrong. It's totally inappropriate, but I'm talking <laughs> about what you feel. But, you know? but what I will say I felt was embarrassment. Uh, I was embarrassed right. to have the illness. Mm. I was embarrassed by the hospitalization. Mm. Uh, so I, I definitely felt that stigma, but I, I do like to avoid the term shame. Oh, I, I absolutely, 100%. But, you know, I also know as a... As a sexual assault survivor, I feel shame, even though there's no reason why I should feel shame. And I think right. we shame ourselves when we're dealing yeah. with something that is very stigmatized by society. And I think that, you know, mental illness is very stigmatized by society. Absolutely. And then I would see it reinforced in society. I, I would hear yeah. people, oh, she's manic, oh, she's off her meds. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just constantly mm-hmm. reinforced, and that just kept me in this really what I describe as a little ball of angst for all of those years. And I just, I wasn't myself for really those 14 years. And that was very troubling to me, but also the people around me, my family, they were quite distressed about how, how upset I was. And my friends were upset as well. And I mean, did you ever feel during those 14 years? I mean, obviously, you know, and I want to get, there in a minute you made a decision to come out but during those 14 years was there ever a moment where you thought maybe I can tell this person or maybe I can talk to this person at work or was there just never a feeling that you could do that it was too unsafe yeah about 10 years ago I came out to one of my colleagues who's Mm -hmm. a close friend of mine and she's just one of those people who's very trustworthy, very yeah. compassionate, sort of a natural-born therapist. And mm. I knew that uh, she would keep my secret. And it was it was very nice out of an office of about 45 of us for me to be able to go to her when I was feeling right. vulnerable. To have one person who knew. Yeah. yeah, just that one person was very helpful. What was the tipping point, Beth? Uh, what made you decide to come out beyond that one person? And, you know, I'm sure that you are going to be able to pinpoint, you know, a real moment here and that you have a vivid memory of. So could you walk us through it? Yeah, there were uh, two uh, big things that happened. So the first one was two colleagues of mine talked to me separately about mental illness in their family. So one Mm. had a daughter who was an outpatient at KMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And the other one uh, had a mom who was uh, an inpatient at KMH and I just, I heard their stories and I just yeah. thought to myself, oh, Beth, like you just have so much information and support that you can that offer. you could share, yeah. So I just, I took the plunge and I told both of them and we ended up having these wonderful conversations and I met with their, their family members and it was just so liberating to tell my story and they didn't bat an eyelash like they didn't think anything of it it was and it was sort of an opportunity to normalize the illness both for mm. them and for myself right right so nobody was turning around to you and saying oh well you know i can see how this might affect your performance all those things that you were worried about when you right. were keeping it a secret 
Exactly. And by that point, because I had been working for 14 years at that same branch, they knew that I was a hard worker and that I was reliable. Um, So I felt safe in that sense. And, you know, and that raises a really interesting question, I think, Beth, because, yes, they knew you and they, you know, they knew you by your work. And I'm thinking, you know, there are young lawyers just called who also have bipolar, and they are going to feel, I can't possibly disclose this until I've at least established myself. I mean, what would you say to people in that situation? Yeah, it's it's very tricky for them. I think job security is a huge factor in making a decision to come out. And I think I, I certainly understand why young people would want to keep quiet about it. My My one sort of request of them is that they reach out to other people in their lives and get the support that they need. Mm. And also if if they feel comfortable talking to a colleague like I did 10 years ago, uh, then perhaps do talk to that one colleague. And, and right. they really may be amazed at how much support that they get. Yeah. The other factor is if they do need accommodation, for instance, uh, fewer hours, less stressful work, right. time out during the day to go see their psychologist, psychiatrist, what have you, um, then it may be necessary to disclose. Um, and again, I think people may well be surprised at how much support they get. But again, I certainly don't, um, I certainly understand that uh, people would want to keep Their anxiety. quiet. Yeah, yeah it, until they sort of uh, get comfortable they've proven themselves to be hard workers um, mm-hmm. they sort of uh, made a name for themselves uh, then it's more uh, um, reasonable for them to disclose now you know you've obviously weathered this and you know come out the other end with now uh, you know this real commitment to advocacy in this area which I want to talk about in a minute but do you think how, how are we going to change this How are we going to change this feeling that if you admit to a vulnerability, yes, you might find a really sympathetic, empathetic person who perhaps has experience of mental illness in their own family, but you also might find someone who labels you or who thinks worse of you. I mean, how, you know, this is a whole deep cultural thing. How are we going to change that? Um, Well, first off, the people who label you, that's their problem. Like those people are not compassionate and that's their issue. It's not the the issue of the mentally ill person. I I think what it comes down to is we we have to share our stories. And it's not that I'm suggesting that uh, young people share their stories, but people like me uh, to share my story. So Mm -hmm. I mentioned that there were two um, sort of critical pieces in making my decision to disclose. So after I spoke to my two colleagues, I ended up, because I was having so much fun, I thought, this is great. I'm going over very well. So I talked to some other colleagues. And then I ended up speaking to my legal director, and she was very supportive. And we agreed that I would give a presentation at one of our monthly staff meetings. And again, 45 lawyers, mainly 45 staff, mainly lawyers. And I gave myself two months to think about what I was going to say and how I was going to say it. And it was just agony. It was two of the worst (laughs) months of my life. And I would say it's the hardest thing that I've ever done. And I just had pains of anxiety. Oh, I can can well imagine. You must have gone over and over what you were going to say. I really did. And then the day came, I made my presentation, and they stood up and gave me a standing ovation. (gasps) Oh. 
It was so lovely, Julie. That's and there's wonderful. been no looking back. I've yeah. I've just been advocating ever since. And I I think by more senior people um, sharing their state their stories, yes. it it gives hope uh, to the younger people. Yes. Uh, it it makes them realize that they can have a successful career despite having a major mental illness, whether it be bipolarity, anxiety, depression. Mm. Sort of those top three ones. It is doable. Oh, I can I can just imagine you standing up in that room in front of those forty five people. That was such a courageous. As I said, it was the hardest thing I've ever done, and then it turned out to be the best thing that I've ever done because there's just no looking back. Because if you had the support of your family and friends, that's great, but you kind of expect it. But with your colleagues, you don't necessarily expect it. And with their support, I've just been able to go on and do all sorts of advocacy work. So I I really do credit my colleagues. So you've committed yourself now to bringing attention to the prevalence mental illness amongst lawyers and I'm you're part of the Bell Let's Talk campaign. What do you think for you personally though has changed in your workplace relationships as you have come out about this and you've taken this on as, as a matter of advocacy? I mean it sounds as if the change is positive. Has there been anything negative at all? Has there been anything difficult? There has been nothing negative. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not gossiping behind my back, right. like it could be people behind closed doors or saying things, but that would be far outweighed by this positive um, reinforcement that I've received. And I've had yeah. people tell me at my office, Beth, you started a conversation within right. our branch and you've normalized mental illness mm-hmm. and people are wonderfully relieved that I came out because it's yeah. allowed them to share their stories. And you think that's encouraged, I'm sure that's encouraged other people to come out as well. I think so. Yeah. I've, I've certainly gotten lots of feedback. I, I wrote an article for the Globe and Mail in August of 2017 and I got lots of feedback then and then yeah. of course the Bell Let's And we will put that up on the web podcast oh. website and <laughs> post your podcast, yes. Terrific. Yeah. So it really has been um, extremely positive and and nothing negative to my face. So can I just close by asking you, you know, there are going to be people listening to this podcast who are struggling with this issue themselves and trying to decide what to do about it in the context of their work relationship. And there are also going to be people listening to this podcast who aren't lawyers but who also have mental illness issues. And they're also, you know, living in the same stigmatizing culture that we all live in around mental illness, where it's uncomfortable for people to disclose. Do you have a kind of final word of encouragement or advice for those folks from your own experience? Uh, What I would say is when you look at the numbers, one in five Canadians right now is living with mental illness, and it's, it's substantially higher for lawyers, where four times yeah. more likely to live with depression and anxiety. But when you have those numbers, you are not alone. So I think that's the first thing to keep in mind. I felt yeah. very much alone for all of those 14 years. Yeah. I only ever yeah. spoke to one other person with bipolar disorder, and that was extremely difficult. So mm. I would say you are not alone. That mental illness is perfectly normal. I don't know why Mother Nature (laughs) created it in us, but um, uh, we're not alone. And to um, reach out to other people with whom you feel safe and have some conversations. Because I know uh, if you pick the right people, then you will get a lot of support. So I I would encourage people uh, to not be 
closeted like I was for all of those years. Well, it's a really inspiring story, Beth, and I wish you all the very best with this wonderful work you're doing as you continue to do it. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you, Julie. I really appreciate being given the opportunity. I'm so happy that we are doing this as our first episode this season. That was just such a moving, inspiring, interesting conversation with Beth. And uh, as always, there are a few points that we kind of want to dig out a little bit mm-hmm. and talk talk further about. So the first one is, she speaks of it fairly early on in the conversation. It, it really struck me, the line she said, I wasn't myself for those 14 mm. years. And it was such... <sighs> It's kind of heartbreaking to think of somebody living for that long, feeling like not themselves, that they can't be honest about who they are with the people in their lives. And especially if you knew Beth, someone like Beth, who is this wonderfully open, Mm. warm, gregarious person. Yeah. And And just hiding it. The isolation of that. And and yeah. she speaks about that, about how she felt so alone and like that there weren't other people experiencing this and that she's this aberration kind of is the way she talked about it. And um, that's so, that's awful. Nobody should have to feel that way, no. especially on top of going through what she was going through health-wise. Yeah, and I thought, I thought it was so interesting as well when, you know, we talked about the impact of that isolation on how she felt about her illness herself because, you know, there is a long history of stereotyping Mm -hmm. mental illness as a personal failing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this idea of shame and Beth herself talked about embarrassment. And what, of course, really should be the case is this is just a thing. This is just a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But how much harder it was for Beth to really internalize that belief that this was a diagnosis, it wasn't a personal failing in the light of having nobody in her office or with whom she worked on a daily basis aware of what she was dealing with. Mm-hmm. So, and related to that is the thing that she experienced for so many years, not feeling like she was secure in a position that she could trust that her job would be safe, basically, if she said anything about what, yeah, that she wouldn't be judged. And so that makes her understand very much how other people, particularly, as she says, younger lawyers who are just starting out, who may be struggling with mental health issues, do not feel ready to to come out kind of or, or say anything, you know, more broadly and how, as as we talked about just now, that that is kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because you may need to say something if you want accommodations, which may be very, time very off necessary. For a medical appointment, yes. right? Very important. And she said, you know, time to make sure you're you're able to see your therapist or yes. you know whatever else it yes. may be. So that's a really difficult position to be in. You're between a rock and a hard place. If anybody learns anything from her speaking out like this, it's even if you're not in a position to be able to be as vocal and public about it as as she has been more recently, at least for your own sake, tell find one person mm. in your life, at least one person who in you your, can trust. In your work life. In yes. your work life, yeah, yeah. even who, who you can trust and you know uh, will understand as much as possible uh, because of how, how important that was for her to be able to share with that one person, at right. least until she was able to share more generally. Yeah, and everything that we're talking about here and everything that... 
Beth talks about is, of course, just as applicable to any other workplace. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking at this from the perspective of lawyers and the expectations placed on them and the barriers that raises to being upfront about mental health issues. We could be having this conversation about any workplace. Of course. And I, I certainly hope that people listening, you know, will be able to connect this to their own experience, in, including her, I think, very practical recommendation. Just find one person that you can tell. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, I just wanted to cheer when she was talking about, first of all, how, how anxious she was for those two months prior to her giving the seminar to all her colleagues. Her coming out speech. Her coming out speech and how nervous she was beforehand. And then, you know, after she gave it, that they gave her a standing ovation. Just, I mean, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it's the hope, of course, that every workplace would, would respond in the same way. And unfortunately, that may not be the case still, but we have to work towards that. And, and then the other thing we wanted to talk about, it was so obvious to me, and I think it will be to some of our listeners as well, how much you were relating to what she was saying, <laughs> Julie, about um, kind of coming out about a, something that has affected your life so greatly, and, and yet you were afraid to say anything because of the fear of being judged, even right. when that is not right. right. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't until we got to that moment in the interview and Beth talked about her coming out speech that I realized, wait, hang on, I did this too. <laughs> 2014, I stood up before a room full of people and talked about the fact that I had been raped and sexually abused. And I had also kept that secret for a very long time. And so my you know, connection with Beth over the, both the anxiety that preparing to do something like that will create. And I think Beth says, which was my experience as well, that you know she went over and over and over and over mm -hmm. what she was going to say. I mean, I, I never prepared more for anything in my entire I life. I was thinking about <laughs> you so much because I remember you telling me I wrote every word there. And usually yeah. I just kind of go off Wing the cuff, a bit, yeah. you know? And at the same time as that anxiety, this absolute feeling of determination, mm -hmm. which she clearly had, that this was the time to come mm -hmm. out of that mental health vault, mm -hmm. just like I was determined that I was going to do this. And the incredible support of people as a consequence. And Beth talks in the interview about how, you know, she thinks that that should give us hope for how yeah. people are going to respond. And I would want to underscore that as well, at the same time recognizing it's not for everybody, and in some workplaces and in some contexts, it's certainly going to be much better received than others. But what Beth describes in, in, those, in those moments, I think, is what we should be aiming for. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that people listening to this will feel some inspiration from Beth Beattie. Well, and just to, to add on to that, because we wanted to make sure of, to make this point as well, that as she says, even, yeah, understanding that not everybody is in a position where they're able to share this, but anybody who is should because of this very thing that it gives hope and comfort to all of the people who maybe can't be as vocal yeah. about it and also normalizes it and, and gets us all talking about it more and recognizing that, as you said at the top, this is it's a diagnosis. It's not a judgment on your character. Right. And as I think the Me Too movement has also learned, strength in numbers. Absolutely. Very important. In Other News. Welcome back to the In Other News segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. There has been a lot happening in the world of access to justice since the previous season, so we're showcasing a few different stories this week. First, 
Jamie McLaren, Executive Director of Access Pro Bono, released a report for the Attorney General of British Columbia on legal aid service delivery in British Columbia. The report includes 25 recommendations in consultation with various stakeholders and is an important step in understanding and improving how legal aid is administered in the province or even across the country. Second, the Law Society of Ontario Bencher election is coming up soon. Benchers regulate the legal profession in the public interest, and we encourage our lawyer listeners to be informed about the issues and to vote. While members of the public can't vote, we encourage you all to engage with the candidates on Twitter using the hashtag BencherElection2019. You can learn more about the election at the website www.lsobencher.com. Third, NSRLP released our updated Access to Justice Annotated Bibliography, summarizing and linking to academic papers, news articles, and reports discussing questions and solutions of access to justice. Read and bookmark this thorough resource. Fourth, the NSRLP now has a recurring column with SLAW.ca, Canada's online legal magazine. So far, NSRLP has published two articles on SLAW, and we've linked to both of them below. The first article examines the jurisprudence that exists on the SRL phenomenon in Canada and summarizes some of the major findings of our case law database. The second article discusses the notion of sharp practice, bad behavior committed by lawyers against unrepresented parties, both what currently happens and what should be done about it. Lastly, Julie has launched a new blog on Medium dedicated to survivors of sexual violence, their advocates, and for survivor advocates. It is also for anyone who wants to understand better what it feels like to be a victim of sexual harassment, abuse, or assault. The blog is called Private Grief to Personal Advocacy, Confronting Sexual Violence, and includes reflections on topics like the trial of the church minister who abused Julie 40 years ago, the statement of the Pope following the church summit on sexual abuse in late February, and the effects and enforceability of non-disclosure agreements. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. 